Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Allison DeAngelis. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, December 1st, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Stats' Rachel Kors joins us to explain how pharma, the all-powerful lobbying group, lost its edge in a fight over drug pricing legislation. And we'll explain how some pivotal data from a pair of Alzheimer's treatments is changing how neurologists think about the disease. We'll also discuss the latest news in the life sciences, including the first FDA-approved microbiome drug and a potential mega-deal. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hey, Read Out Loud listeners. On December 5th, join me, Damien, other stat reporters, and industry voices in New York City for a conversation about the year that was and the year ahead for biotech. Stat Plus subscribers can join for free, and if you're not a subscriber, use code POD, that's P-O-D in all capitals, for a 10% discount. Visit statnews.com events to learn more. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, the COO of STAT. Cancer is always a difficult diagnosis, but we know that for many people diagnosed with blood cancer, there is hope on the horizon. I'm here with Gina Laporte, Vice President, Global Head of Lymphoma and Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia Development at Genentech. Gina, tell us more. There is tremendous hope. Thanks to devoted researchers and clinicians, cancer patients are achieving remission and living longer, and there is more hope for cures. My colleagues and I are so honored to play a role in the continued effort to bring better care to even more people living with blood cancer. For nearly two decades, our scientists have been studying and developing new approaches to improve initial treatment, address resistance and relapse, improve quality of life, and ultimately help people extend remissions and live longer. Thanks, Gina. Listeners, for more on Genentech's work in blood cancers, visit gene.com slash hematology. That's G-E-N-E dot com forward slash hematology. So for years, scientists have understood that beneficial bacteria that exist in the gut can be used therapeutically to treat disease. However, after many, many ups and downs of scientific development, it's taken quite a while for us to get to a point where that would be a practicable medicine, which brings us to this week, Allison, which is when the FDA approved the first therapy that harnesses this concept of the microbiome to treat a disease. What happened? Yeah. So this week, um, the FDA approved a drug called Rebiota from Faring Pharmaceuticals, and it's a fecal uh, transplantation treatment um, that's meant to treat uh, C. diff, which is a condition that people, often people who have had, you know, large doses of antibiotics in the past that have kind of disrupted the natural, like, stasis of good bacteria and bad bacteria in their guts. Those people, you know, have had that stasis disrupted and the bad bacteria has taken over. Now, this this therapy that got, intro- that got approved this week um, reintroduces good bacteria into the system through a, a fecal transplant and actually, you know, in, in clinical testing has been shown to like reduce uh, flare-ups of this condition, this bowel condition that, you know, causes a lot of pain and like gastrointestinal distress. And it's interesting. I mean, this, the concept behind this treatment is something that 
you know, people, it's, it's not new. You know, we've been talking about the microbiome and there has been cases, plenty of cases in the years where people have kind of done like DIY versions of this at home. But having this FDA signed off therapy um, kind of sets in wave a motion of new treatments to come. Let's all pause for a moment and think about DIY <laughs> fecal transplant. Yep. Okay. <laughs> enough of that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like so, you said, Allison. So this has obviously been, uh, you know, long in the making. So what what makes this uh, treatment now FDA approved different from the sort of DIY approaches of of the past? Yeah. Well, I mean, the <laughs> how many times can we see say DIY uh, fecal transplant in this podcast? Those those approaches are normally it's been people doing it, you know, at home without without medical supervision, and um, using transplanted materials that have not been, you know, kind of the the quality control, you know, isn't, there's not a uniform quality control, you know, there's not a manufacturer that's going through and and saying that, you know, these, these samples don't contain potentially harmful bacteria or other pathogens that could actually create trouble. This treatment from fairing, you know, is actually an approved and it will be, you know, reviewed um, by the appropriate officials and by a quality control team. So that led a lot of people in, you know, the advisory committee meeting that was held over this product in September to say, you know what, like there are already people doing this at home. If we approve this, we at least get some like control over the safety of these type of treatments. And we, we get something that, you know, physicians can review that a drug manufacturer will have reviewed and will hopefully be a little bit, you know, uh, overall safer for patients. So is this approval, does this conceivably set in motion a next wave of microbiome targeted drugs that are perhaps not <laughs> fecally derived or, or, you know, don't necessarily have the lineage in um, fecal transplant, but rather do some other molecular wizardry to replicate those similar effects? Yeah, I mean, the the wave is already, you know, kind of nearing the the crest and crashing. We have, you know, this drug from Faring, which will kind of have a slight head start, if all goes well, um, on a similar product that's being um, reviewed right now by the FDA um, that was made by Ceres Therapeutics. Um, that drug is an oral drug. It's a, you know, a, a, essentially a capsule containing that beneficial bacteria, also designed for the same type of condition. And there are several other microbiome companies that are in clinical trials, most of which are starting with C. diff. So fairing is going to have a lot of competition, but this first approval kind of, you know, sets the tone and, you know, will will prime the market for these types of treatments. And these are treatments that are both oral, and I think that we also have some other treatments that are fecal as well. Uh, I'm not even going to try to connect. <laughs> Just let's let it go. <laughs> so moving on, we spent a lot of the summer reading reports that Merck was planning to acquire CGen for something on the order of $40 billion, which led to lots of takes about how this was going to reignite the market for big companies buying smaller ones in the drug industry, cut to the fall, and that didn't happen, doesn't seem likely to happen. And the boom in M&A that a lot of people predicted based upon the ongoing crash of biotech stocks has not taken place in 2022 as yet. However, uh, there was some news this week that a deal smaller than that $40 billion potential acquisition that never happened, 
but yet still quite large, could conceivably happen. Allison, what was the story? So this week we got a report from the Wall Street Journal that uh, this company called Horizon Therapeutics is apparently in conversations with multiple drug companies. They're talking to Janssen, they're talking to Amgen and Sanofi over potential um, M&A offers. And Horizon actually came out um, right after this report was published and confirmed that they were in uh, highly preliminary discussions with this, these three pharma companies over a potential acquisition. Yeah, this was a, a noteworthy, uh, well, not I, went, I was going to say a noteworthy deal, but because there's no deal yet, there, these are preliminary talks, as Horizon said. But, you know, uh, Damien, as you alluded to, you know, one of the big trends this year has been the dearth of M&A. We had sort of not had any big deals that, you know, obviously it's people are very excited. Uh, and uh, so this one, you know, if, if it is if it is consummated, it would be pretty large. Uh, Horizon is uh, an $18 billion market cap company. So, you know, you, you, you know, add on a premium for that. So we're talking about a potentially a pretty significant deal if, if, if one is to come to fruition. And I think what, you know, what, what we can say about this, you know, at least maybe these preliminary talks is the companies that are uh, looking to maybe acquire Horizon are, you know, probably are looking for approved products that have uh, significant growth potential. Uh, Horizon sells a drug called Tepeza for thyroid eye disease. If you watch television or streaming, <laughs> you probably have seen the ads. They they do flood the market with uh, with advertisement for that drug. And it's a it's about a one point six billion dollar drug. Uh, today. And uh, I think it has, you know, look at some of the projections from analysts, it could be a potentially like a three or $4 billion peak sales drug. So that's a that's a meaningful chunk of change for companies like Amgen or Janssen or Sanofi that are thinking about buying them. Yeah. And it's also a, an interesting kind of uh, bow, if it happens, um, on this turnaround story that Horizon has been um, writing over the last like six, seven years, you know, the company kind of started out as a specialty pharma uh, company um, and got caught up in a lot of the turmoil in like the 2014-2015 era um, when specialty car pharma companies like Valent were being really scrutinized by, uh, you know, government officials. Um, they have kind of been on a mission to reinvent themselves as a therapeutics company, um, they actually even acquired a AstraZeneca spinout, uh, Viella Bio, for about three billion dollars um, a year or two ago, and have been trying to like build out this narrative of them as a therapeutics company, and to see them field offers written around you know this drug that potentially has yeah three or four billion dollar um, sales potential over you know over the years. Um, would be a great, you know, conclusion to that story. So it's been a little while since uh, this podcast talked about Alzheimer's, and that's really only because <laughs> we didn't have a podcast last week because of Thanksgiving. Damien, you are actually in San Francisco right now at the CTAD conference, uh, Alzheimer's disease meeting, uh, and it's been a it's been a pretty momentous meeting. Tell us a little bit about what it was like in the room for the lecanemab, the ASI. Uh, Alzheimer's treatment, you know, those data were presented for the first time in full. Tell us what it was like to be in that room and what the reaction was like. That's right. So yeah, our staff colleague, Jonathan Bose and I are here in San Francisco for 
CTAD, which having been to quite a few Alzheimer's medical meetings over the past decade, they are mostly convocations to try to learn as much as possible from a study that came out with a negative result, whether it was glancingly negative, whether the drug was unsafe, whatever. So there tends to be a kind of, not funereal, but there tends to be a somewhat somber mood to these meetings. People come to try to glean what's possible from yet another disappointment in a long line of 20 years of disappointments. Cut to 2022, and we've spoken a lot about lecanemab, the drug from ASI and Biogen, um, that had, according to a press release, positive phase three data um, in terms of delaying the advance of Alzheimer's disease compared to placebo. So what we got on Tuesday was a packed room full of hundreds of neurologists and investors and, and people like me, I suppose, there to hear just how impactful was this drug in this trial. And I mean, there was, it's customary to applaud whenever someone gives a presentation. But at one point, just in the introduction, when they cut to the fact that it was simultaneously published in the New England Journal of Medicine, there was just spontaneous applause from this crowd. And it felt like there was kind of, I don't know, a pent up need for something to be optimistic about among these scientists and clinicians, many of whom have been studying and, and maybe more importantly, treating Alzheimer's disease for years. And thus, they're very familiar with the conversation one has with patients and their families upon diagnosis when the question is, what can we do to potentially arrest this? And the answer, of course, has been nothing, uh, ostensibly. It sounds like they talked about you know what we can call a, a erstwhile topic of Alzheimer's uh drug development, I mean, amyloid beta plaques. Uh, talk to us about like what we saw at this meeting with regards to how lecanemab, you know, performed against plaques and also cognitive function, you know, and and the overall like tenor of what that means for these these types of drugs, because that's been the focus for so long with a continuous debate. Did we get a clearer perspective after this lecanemab data? So that, I think that the answer is yes, or, or the answer is yes adjacent. Um, but the details, I think, are, are what really drive it. So as you mentioned, you know, amyloid, which is a, a plaque that builds up in the brain, has been known about for the better part of 100 years and has been considered, especially for the past 30 or so, to be, I would say, contributing to the advance of Alzheimer's disease. There are those who argued it was this solitary cause. I don't think anybody would make that argument now. But in any case, it looked like the best target. And so drug after drug after drug has attempted to clear amyloid from the brain and therefore um, show a benefit on cognitive and functional results compared with placebo. Lecanemab seems to be the first one that clearly did so in a phase three trial. So what we learned from the aforementioned press release back in September was that it had a real but modest effect on cognition. And then we got mostly descriptive terms about how it worked on amyloid and on other measures of cognitive function. What we got on Tuesday was a lot, a lot, a lot of detail on all of those things. And so the effect it had on the primary endpoint didn't change. It was 0.45 on an 18-point scale, which I know we've described in the past and we can delve into it again. But basically, on, clinicians say on the verge of what you would call clinically meaningful benefit on cognition and function. So that's a debate people can have. But the supporting evidence is, I think, what was so striking to people, which is that 
it also had a significant effect on three backup measures of cognition and function that tracked very well with the effect that you saw on the primary one. And then perhaps most importantly, it had a dramatic effect on clearing amyloid from the brains of patients as measured by PET scan. And that effect was, was significant at just six months after starting treatment. So, you know, this is an audio medium, um, so I'm not going to describe a curve, but I guess I would say it's the kind of thing, when they put up the chart of the amyloid in the brains of patients on placebo versus the amyloid in the brains of patients on lecanemab, there was no question whatsoever that this is an incredibly powerful drug when it comes to clearing amyloid. And so the conversation now among whether scientists are amyloid skeptics or, you know, maybe leaning toward this is a good idea is less does amyloid play any role in Alzheimer's disease? And more, clearly it does. But I think the emerging picture we're getting is that you one needs to clear dramatic amounts of amyloid from the brain and quickly and keep it low to get even the modest clinical benefit that we saw with lecanemab. And that informs conceivably future development of drugs that not only the potential combination therapies that, that are now kind of coming into focus now that lecanemab appears to be destined for FDA approval, but also future amyloid targeting drugs. Is there a way to get even lower? Is there a way to get lower quicker? What are the means by which these data can inform an attack on Alzheimer's with the understanding that, again, the clinical benefit we're seeing here is real, but you know, not reversing the disease, not halting the disease, obviously not curing the disease, but just slowing the means or the process by which patients advance from one stage of dementia to the next. I wanted to go back to the question of, you know, clinically meaningful benefit, you know, like what this drug is actually doing for patients, because I think that's obviously been the central debate. It's 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 the most important debate when a drug like this gets approved and whether physicians feel like it should be used in patients and whether insurance companies feel like they need to reimburse a drug like this for Alzheimer's. Um, did you sense any shifting of sentiment? around clinical benefit based on these data. Obviously, there are a lot of people who doubt the amyloid hypothesis, and, that, and that's been an easy argument to make because so many of these studies fail. Um, do you see a shift here? I think so. I mean, just in speaking to neurologists who I know were maybe not partisans uh, in, the ter in terms of whether amyloid is a good target, but kind of realists in that, like, you know, to your point, drug after drug failed. So they would say, hey, maybe it is a good target. Show me some good data. This is the goodest data that they've ever seen on this target. So I, I don't think there's a dispute, at least in, in the mainstream, that, that what lecanemab demonstrated is a mirage. I think there's more an acceptance that, okay, 0.45 on this 18-point scale, essentially half a point, is what you get from a treatment like this. Understanding that it will likely soon be FDA approved and, and in the future perhaps reimbursed and thus widely available, what does that mean for clinical practice? So I ask people a lot, you know, what, what would 0.5, how would you characterize that to a patient who asked you whether this drug was right for them? And that's where a lot of opinions vary. There are people who say, I think that is on the margins of what I would say would make a meaningful difference in someone's life. There are others who say, you know, marginal benefit is deeply desirable. The only medications currently available for people with Alzheimer's disease deal with the symptoms, not the actual advance of the disease. So when you dig into this metric that, that ASI used in this trial, the difference between 0.5 and, and 1.0, the difference between 3 and 3.5, can often mean the difference between 
being able to do certain things independently, being able to drive oneself, being able to handle the family finances. And while basically in the best case scenario, this drug would be delaying the advance of dementia by a number of months, compounded over a number of years and over you know however many patients, that can start to look like something that would be desirable. So then the conversation moves to how much does it cost, which we don't yet know. And also, you know, how practical is it for patients to get, this is an every two-week drug that is infused intravenously. So these are all kind of practical concerns on the horizon. But if you kind of zoom out and, and think back to all of the Alzheimer's meetings that we've seen, practicality was rarely a conversation. The, the fight was over these negligible little movements in data and does this biomarker portend this and whatever. So I think it's important to remember that like, it's very rare for there to be a positive phase three clinical study presented at a meeting like this. And I think everyone in the community is now kind of wrapping their heads around a new reality. As you know, Jeff Cummings said in, in sort of the, the keynote session, the world has changed in terms of treating Alzheimer's disease. We just need to figure out how. I feel like the elephant in the room coming out of this meeting is the fact that following, you know, ASI and Biogen's last Alzheimer's bet, aducanumab, um, you know, Medicare, as of right now, really wouldn't cover a drug like this, which is a huge blow um, for anybody who is developing, you know, an amyloid targeting uh, therapy. And that, you know, aducanumab did not have that goodwill of the, you know, medical community that you're describing being, you know, I, it sounds like a little bit more present after this meeting that you were just at. Do you think that that, you know, will will kind of help them, ASI and Biogen, tackle this Medicare situation and, and try and, you know, reverse that policy or at least get, you know, some sort of wiggle room through that policy? I mean, it definitely can't hurt. And I think it, it's worth noting, I think we've mentioned this before and have written before that the ASI Biogen partnership is much more of a turn-based game than it is a proper collaboration. So Helm um, was largely led in development by Biogen. And then maybe most important to this conversation, the commercial rollout was led by Biogen, setting the price, talking to regulators, et cetera. The opposite is true here. It is ASI, they've made clear, and, Bi and Biogen has made clear, it is ASI driving the bus on this one. And so they have... To your point, I think more goodwill going in by virtue of a much clearer data set than Adjuhelm had, I think, to say the least. They presented the data quite quickly after disclosing the top-line results, and they published it concurrently in the New England Journal of Medicine. If we go back to the Adjuhelm saga, you may remember the manuscript. It was complicated, and it took a long time, and there was a lot of confusion as to what the data actually showed. So those are all benefits in ASI's pocket heading into this conversation with regulators. And they have also the benefit of having watched their partner... I don't want to say do everything wrong, but, you know, kind of walk through a field of rakes in, in launching Adjuhelm. And I think, I mean, they told us, ASI has paid very close attention to this and they have a plan for this. It doesn't guarantee them success when it comes to changing Medicare's mind. But they have clearly, you know, they told us they've been talking to CMS, the organization that runs Medicare, for months leading up to this about the design of the trial, what kind of data they were going to see. As soon as they had data, they are now in conversations with them about what they actually mean. They have to go through the FDA approval process first in January for an accelerated approval based on the amyloid lowering, which, based on the Adjuhelm precedent, probably won't change much commercially for lecanemab. But more importantly, they will then go through a full approval process, which will likely conclude, I would assume, in the summertime. And it's really concurrently with that 
that they will have their chance to make the case to CMS that the very strict rule applied, inspired by Adjuhelm, shouldn't apply to lecanemab, that all of the deficiencies that CMS cited in Adjuhelm's clinical data, including not just the difficult-to-interpret efficacy signal, but also the lack of diversity in clinical trials, the lack of clarity in, in how this drug would be dosed in the real world, that they have data to answer all of those questions, and that lecanemab should not be subject to the rule, but rather be the exception to it. And I have no idea how that's going to go. And, you know, deeply important to that is how much they choose to charge for this medicine, which we also don't know. Um, but I think that ASI, at the very least, is moving into this, having metabolized the lessons that Biogen so painfully learned last year. Well, the calendar is shaping up to be really exciting because the FDA approval decision on for Lucanumab is January 6th. So that's coming up really soon. Um, and then... That's obviously just days before uh, we all descend, well, some of us descend to San Francisco <laughs> again for the JP Morgan conference, uh, where Biogen and its new CEO will be talking. So, uh, you know, we there will be a lot more discussion about this drug and its commercial potential and its price and the impact of that price coming up. So um, I guess I'm I guess I'm thinking that we'll probably be talking more about Alzheimer's on future episodes of this podcast. I think it's a safe bet, Adam. <laughs> and that sound you heard was thousands of people clicking off. The pharmaceutical industry's lobbying arm called Pharma, that's P-H-R-M-A, has a reputation in Washington, D.C. for using money and power to fight aggressively against any politician or policy that might hurt the well-being of its drug-making members. But Pharma's longstanding aura of D.C. invincibility was shattered earlier this year when Congress passed groundbreaking legislation, which President Biden then signed into law, allowing the government to negotiate certain prescription drug prices. It was a humbling defeat for the pharma industry, but how did this happen? And what does it mean for the future of pharma? Those are some of the questions examined by Rachel Kors, one of Stats DC reporters, in a story that she wrote this week. Uh, she joins us now to discuss it. Rachel, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So Rachel, drug pricing reform is a very big deal. From a lobbying perspective, how significant a defeat was this for pharma? Well, you can't really overstate how big of a loss this was for pharma. Um, they've been fighting this policy specifically for two decades, and they have won every single time. But I, I think lawmakers kind of crossed the Rubicon this time and allowed the government to negotiate drug prices. And once you break down that firewall, there's not really a way to put it back up. And I think while the policy was kind of watered down from Democrats' like biggest ambitions to take on the industry, um, it opens that door that things could get worse for Harma down the road um, as lawmakers realize that they can just save money by adding more drugs to this program um, every year when they need it. So in your story, you cite previous examples of legislative threats to the drug industry, for instance, the run-up to the Affordable Care Act. Um, at the end of the 2000s, where pharma's lobbying efforts were much, much more successful. What was different this time around? 
Well, I think um, as I talked to experts about this, one kind of trend that they noted was that there is this kind of rise of populism in recent years. So big business like pharma is kind of less popular, less influential with both Republicans and Democrats. Um, but I think this was kind of the two decade kind of culmination of this drumbeat about high drug prices. Nancy Pelosi, who's pushed this policy for a long time, is eyeing the end of her tenure in Congress, in leadership. Um, and she kind of realized that this was the last chance um, to get this done. And I think pharma has argued for a long time that pursuing a policy like this would you know, dry up their research budgets, that it would hurt innovation. And I think at some point, lawmakers just reached um, a point where they they didn't believe that those consequences were as severe as drug makers had told them. Um, and so they decided to move forward anyway. And pharma had, you know, the best kind of argument in favor of their industry um, that they could, you know, even hope for with the rapid development of COVID-19 vaccines. But they still weren't able to capitalize and turn that into political currency, into influence, into a coalition to defend them on Capitol Hill against this policy. And, you know, it was a lost opportunity and kind of the the culmination of anti-pharma sentiment that's been brewing on the Hill for a very long time. It's now set a bit of a, a clock ticking. I mean, starting in 2025, the government will be able to negotiate drug prices. It will start out on a limited basis, but there is you know, there is a, a time frame in sight. So what is pharma doing now? Are there any efforts to modify or try to repeal the law? So industry certainly has tweaks that they'd like to see to the law um, around the edges, but they're not really very optimistic that that's actually going to happen this year or even next year because um, Democrats still control the legislature right now and President Biden is still in charge and there's not a whole lot of incentive for them to change their law to be, you know, more favorable to the industry. Um, so it's possible, you know, one or two of those like tweaks would sneak through. Uh, but even pharma CEO was kind of managing expectations at the Stat Summit um, this month, um, saying that he, you know, wasn't particularly optimistic that they're going to be able to get any substantive policy through. Um, on the regulatory side, they are lobbying Medicare to try, um, in their words, to make sure that regulators don't make this bad law, in their view, a worse law um, for their industry. So, you know, they're having conversations, they're having roundtables, but ultimately their influence is pretty limited in that area. So if they do decide to escalate, um, at some point they could, you know, file a lawsuit, litigate against the administration. Um, but that, you know, whole fight is a little ways down the road right now because we haven't really seen kind of the rulemaking start um, around this law. So, Rachel, over the last couple of months, you've reported on turmoil inside bio, which is the biotech industry's lobbying arm. Now we have pharma's influence waning. This seems like a particularly low point for the biopharma industry's influence in D.C. What does the future look like? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I do just want to say that I think bio's situation had a lot of other internal dynamics going on that had nothing to do with this drug pricing um, law. But I think it's certainly true that kind of both organizations, you know, are looking uh, weaker than they have in a very long time. Um, and I think part of the future depends on kind of what 
lessons lawmakers learn from going after the industry in this way. You know, if they don't feel like they see any consequences from it, um, then I think, you know, the the future of lobbying um, from their side, it just loses a lot of credibility um, if, you know, there really aren't measurable consequences for innovation. It's just kind of a hard, squishy thing to quantify. So it's going to be a tough uphill battle for industry to kind of show how a law that, you know, is going to lower costs for some seniors um, is actually a bad thing. So I think that's one trend to watch. And also certainly the leadership at Bio, kind of what direction they go next um, is going to be really important as well, um, because I think they are in a a pretty precarious position moving forward and, you know, have to be very um, careful um, with what they choose. So I think there's definitely um, some challenges, some uphill battles ahead. Um, But, you know, I'll be here in D.C. covering it. Well, Rachel, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether or not you've ever done a DIY fecal transplant. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast. See you next week.